welcome to KVMR, Embracing the Journey, a program focused on the freedom that comes from being able to talk about death. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank. Today, our topic is going to be with some very special volunteers providing a service called the Dying Vigil. With us today are volunteers Linda High and Judy Lay. Welcome, Linda and Judy. Thank you. Thanks. So we'll start with, with Linda, and then we'll move over to Judy. Um, we're going to talk about what the program is, but, but first of all, I wanted to give people the opportunity to, to get to know you a little bit better. Um, we're obviously talking about dying, and so you're volunteers. What, Linda, drew you to volunteer for this program called Dying Vigil? How did you see yourself? Um, was there was a personal um, situations in your life that, that drew you to this? Uh, what what would attract somebody to volunteer around dying? For me, it wasn't anything specific. It was something that I always wanted to work with hospice patients. And throughout my career, I was working five days a week, 40 hours, and I never had the opportunity to take the training. And then in 2012, I did. So I took the first training through hospice to be a respite volunteer. And then, and then the next year, they offered and developed the vigil program, which I immediately jumped into and have been involved with ever since. So did you have a lot of people that you had uh, relationships in your life where... where uh, you were dealing with the death and passing of loved ones? Not really. My mother passed when I was 17, and that was a big blur. And then my father passed in my recent years, and that, that was all. It was just something that was inside me that I was drawn to. Well, very interesting. And Judy, what about you? Did you have some personal connections to, to death before you got involved in volunteering? Well, <clears throat> my own aging life is very personal, <laughs> and um, I'm one of those kind of people that likes to study up when, I'm, when I know something's coming, and I had very few experiences with people as they were dying. I certainly had been to funerals before, but I never really was around someone who was going through that journey of dying. And I knew that I had to learn a lot about it. So unlike Linda, I was not attracted to it at first. In, in many ways, I think it's because of early trauma with having my father die when I was little. And at that time, people did not talk about death with children, nor did we go to any funeral or any oh service. My. So that death wasn't talked about. But I think I carried a lot of fear around it, as I think the culture does as well. And so being unfamiliar with it in a way of having it come and sit with me, with someone that I knew, um, I had no experience, so I had more anxiety about it, and I avoided that training for a while and and spent time with respite and in the bereavement services department. Well, I think this is this is a lovely way to start our our talk tonight because that's really the the purpose of this program is because so many of us have this great fear and anxiety of even talking about death, and the more we talk about it, the more we 
learn about it, the more we make it part of our lives, the freer we are to live. Mm -hmm. uh, so very interesting that you had this courageous curiosity. And then, Linda, you had this, this draw. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of opposite, but both of you ended up in the same place. Um, so uh, could you just tell me, we'll go back to Linda, what your profession was? Are, are, you, are you still working? Or are you retired? Or I'm retired. Um, I have been, I am um, a mother of two adult children and a grandmother of several kids. And I, my professional life was a paralegal. Um, administrative assistant, office manager, school secretary, that kind of thing. So yeah. there was no real connection between dying and the, the work that you did in the None. past? None. Mm. And Judy, what about you? Well, here's another opposite. This is, Linda and I are finding out things about each other. I'm a retired um, child and family therapist, and a big part of my practice was dealing with grief. So that was when I entered hospice as a bereavement volunteer. It utilized all those skills that I had used for 38 years in my practice, and, and I felt right at home with that and very comfortable in the way of being with people who are dealing with a lot of grief. Yeah, so we're kind of backdooring our way into what the program is about tonight, and that's called a program, a specific program that's called the Dying Vigil. And so does one of you want to take the first step at describing what that program is about? You go first, Linda. It's a program where we have a team. We have a team of um, about 12 active participants. And if someone within hospice is without a family and they've expressed they did not want to die alone or they have a family and the family's not available to be with them, we step up and go to the facility or to their home and sit there with them and be their advocate and hold their hand as they're passing over. Would you want to add to that, Judy? Well, I was just thinking she was, Linda's been here since the beginning of the program at Hospice of the Foothills. And um, it started in 2012, you I, said you had training. Linda was on the first that. team. It took me several more years before I was ready to, to approach it. And um, yeah, we, ha we have people called the phone coordinators who on the team that put put together who is going to go at what time. So like a hospice nurse might uh, contact the phone coordinator for that month and say we have a patient or a family member that's requesting a vigil. We'd like to start tonight. And then we, the person who's the phone coordinator will call the people on the list and then we'll set up times to go in shifts. So you mentioned that this is a hospice program, so the patient's already on hospice. And, you know, I know for some folks out there, they, they're very familiar with, with um, our local nonprofit hospice of the Foothills. But for some folks that might have just tuned in, uh, the word hospice, uh, just to, there's, to me, in the past, before I had personal experience, I would 
think what's different? What is the difference between the dying vigil and having hospice? Hmm. I think within a, a doctor would recommend a person be placed on hospice if they have six months or less to live. And they get services through hospice of many types. They get a respite volunteer so someone can come into their home so their caretaker can go to the grocery store, go to the doctor, go to the show. And then we stay with that patient. And they're not necessarily really in the dying process at that. That's one of the at, uh, services that hospice gives. So that's interesting when you're talking about that because, you know, again, for some folks, hospice, you're thinking it, somebody is passing, they're dying, it's imminent. Um, but now you're talking about the dying process. So, mm. Judy, you want to mm -hmm. take a stab at that one? Mm -hmm. Well, there's the dying. You, you've you been given a diagnosis that you have six months or a couple of weeks to live. And at that point, you're starting to face your own dying process. Um, the dying vigil team doesn't come into uh, the scene until the person is actively dying, and that you and the nurse, the hospice nurse, would declare when that is occurring, and that's a particular set of circumstances and physical symptoms that alert the nurse that it's within 24 to 48 hours that the person will die. So that this actively dying process, mm -hmm. that's when you actually go to work in in your particular volunteer mm -hmm. aspect of this, mm -hmm. and that's right. what you were saying about you the nurse makes phone calls to the people who are willing to volunteer. And so in your experience, uh, what is the typical amount of time? I mean, do you get there and it's just minutes, hours, or have you sat there for days? Everything. Days sometimes. Um, my, the longest one I was involved with was a week. And it wasn't necessarily 24 hours a day. It was a, a woman who was with her husband in a care facility, and she wanted to go to her home every Sunday from 4 to 8 o'clock and leave her husband with me. And she did. And I went there for a week. Every Must have been every day she wanted to be home. So, yeah, it was every day and for a week. And so I said to her, in many cases, it's every, everyone is so different. So I said, maybe there's a good chance that he doesn't, that he wants to die alone, that he doesn't want you to be there. And so one, one, of my shifts, I said, I can't get there, um, whatever the time was, at 4. And I got there at 6, but she left at 4, and he died when she was gone. So there is an example of every everything's so different. It, it's, I have heard that before, where some people do truly want somebody to be with them, to either hold their hands or just sit in silence with them. But some people do wait till their time alone. So, Judy, what about your experiences mm -hmm. in this sense? Well, they're all different. I've actually um, been sitting at the vigil 
three times when someone actually died on, when I was there. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, um, I mean, that's, that's an unusual occurrence. We don't, at this point, our team isn't capable of doing the overnight hours. So we only are there during the hours that our team can cover. Um, and so people might die during the evening or um, I've had walked in the room and had someone die within five minutes of me getting there. And I've also had that happen where I've been sitting for maybe three or four hours and had them pass. So it's different. So when you're with somebody who's dying and they're actively dying, I'm imagining they're not that communicative. No. So how do you know what to do or what support to give? If they are grimacing and they seem to be in pain, we can alert the nurse that perhaps they need some more medications to to have more comfort. It's comfort care. Um, many times they get very hot and they're sweating, so we put a cool cloth on their forehead. Um, dry mouth. Dry mouth is another thing. Their mouth is very dry. We have these little swabs that we can mm-hmm. moisten their lips and give them comfort. I, I would say probably the most that we do is sitting in a kind of meditative state and be just stay present. There's very little that actually goes on at that point. Those last few hours to a day that someone's alive, their body, they've really gone more unconscious and um, their body is shutting down. So there's not much to do um, unless the, there is some comfort care needed, as Linda said. But mostly it's quiet. It's a time to sit and be if if we've been told sometimes we at, we ask the information um, do they have a spiritual preference sometimes people want the bible read to them as they're dying and so we would read the bible to them um, you have to be willing as a volunteer to um, step outside of your own spiritual beliefs and religious beliefs and be available to whatever that that particular uh, person is asking for in their last days might be music it might be silence yeah well you're listening to embracing the journey on kvmr i'm Lori burkhart frank and my guests are dying vigil volunteers linda high and judy lay so as you talk about these different ways of being with people in their final hours or days um, is there any training required to to do this volunteer work that you do who wants to go with that? Linda, you're going to start? Yes, we both had training. All along, you get a general hospice training that is sets you up to be a hospice volunteer in many of the capacities. And the Dying Vigil team has had a separate type of training. And it's four, four days' worth. I think it's down to two now. It's down to two mm-hmm. days, and and uh, yes, there's there's a lot to know and what to do and how to respond. And many people who go through the training, yet they still feel, I'd say, afraid, tentative, mm-hmm. and so we'll go with them on a vigil 
and there will be a, to be with them so they they can be with us and team up. Mm-hmm. Kind of a mentoring mm-hmm. way of doing that. Mm-hmm. And who asks for your services? Because I'm assuming that the person who is in the process of acting dying, actively dying probably isn't at a place that they can make that request. Right. The hospice nurse is in communication with the patient before they actually go into that actively dying time. And they, they would tell them about our services and the patient themselves can request it um, whenever that would occur for them. Sometimes the family members request it, and we've even had facilities request it. So I think it can, the request can come from uh, multiple sources. And I was re- just reading up about uh, the di- dying visual um, and just in a general process, because I know you're volunteers for hospice, but one of the things that I was reading online was about um, being there also that to support maybe a loved one who's sitting with their loved one who's having a very difficult time mm-hmm. knowing what to do and have you had those kinds of situations? Mm-hmm. I can give you a good example of one. I was sitting at the bedside of a woman. It was in the afternoon. She was unconscious pretty much. And um, a, a hospice or a nurse's aide from the facility came in and said, Um, there she has a visitor and it's her son and she hasn't seen him in 30 years Mm. and this man came in and he brought about a five-year-old child with him and he was crying and he went immediately to his mother's bedside and started stroking her hair and then he looked at me and he was crying and he said my mom and I had a falling out and I haven't spoken to her in 30 years and he said, my, someone on Facebook said, you know, that this is how I found her. And I immediately got in the car from Las Vegas and drove these eight hours to come and see my mom. She woke up, came out of her dying process. They talked for several hours. I left the room so they could have some privacy. And I took the little child and went down and we colored and did some things together and then um, he came and got me and he said she's gone now or not dead but she's you know gone unconscious again maybe she no maybe he said she was sleeping and so I went back in and yes she had but they had that oh that just gives me the tingles that's so beautiful yeah it is it was really amazing and did you want to share a, s- a story well, or situation? We, we've been told that the hearing is the last to go. So what we also do, what I do, is encourage the patient that even though they, they are seemingly unconscious, encourage them that they're doing a good job and it's hard to die and and you'll you'll soon be over there at the crossed over and and it's a very sacred time it's so uh, obviously the two of you and the other volunteers um do have this connection and um a reason for doing this but for again some people listening this might sound like the most terrifying thing in the world mm-hmm. to do so what it what kind of uh 
gifts or benefits do you have in your life from, from, from volunteering this way? People ask that a lot. And I do it because I can. I do it because I'm given a gift of giving, I guess it would be. And when we finish the vigil, it's not that we're sad. We're glad. We're happy we were there and able to do this sacred thing mm-hmm. that is not always available. And Judy? Hmm. It, it, it definitely has brought me into my own awareness of my own death and made me think about what it is that I want and who I want there and what that might mean for them. And it's, it's made me be more of an advocate for people to really think about that and, and to talk more openly about it. Um, and I have to say, it's one of the most, I don't know if you've ever been at a birth or at a death, but both of them are extremely powerful and very sacred, very sacred acts, both of them. One, one you're, you're bringing someone into the earth, and the other, you're standing by while they exit. And, and when you think about that you're there at the last moment of someone who's lived a whole life and all that they have done, um, what an honor that is to be there. You know, what an honor. And, and as you both talk about it, it does feel like an honor. It feels beautiful um, and rewarding in many sense. But it, I know that it could be extremely terrifying um, for people who are having a hard time saying goodbye to their loved ones. Or I would imagine, like you, you have that lovely story about the woman whose son came and she was able to con- connect with him. Are there patients that have a really tough time making a transition? During their transition process? Mm-hmm. If they are, then it's, they're not actively dying. Because once someone's actively dying, they're no longer struggling. They might, they might, as Linda said, grimace like I'm in pain, and then the morphine would or the medication would come in. But um, if someone's really having a lot of uh, physical and emotional reaction to their dying, they're not actively dying yet, and we wouldn't be there. Well, it's very interesting. This is the first time I, I've heard that distinction, um, and because uh, you know, again, I'm thinking, you know, you know, you're dying. We all know we're going to die, um, and and so, how big a difference does it make to that person? But mm. I think what I'm understanding is there must be some level of surrender to get to that place of actively dying. Well, I think the surrendering process happens sooner than in that that last part is literally every organ in the body is shutting down. So there's no more capacity really to get sit up or open. You know, someone might open their eyes, but you look at them and they're not there. Mm -hmm. There's no connecting visually. Um, So I would say that 
that when someone's really struggling with dying, they're still in the process of, of, of dying and they're not at the place where the vigil would be called yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you both have been volunteering to do this for, for some time. You were at the beginning of this program for hospice. What about you, Judy? How long have you been doing this? Um, I've been a hospice volunteer for 10 and a half, maybe 11 years, and doing Dying Vigil about eight. So what keeps you coming back? Because that's a long time. I would imagine that these are pretty emotionally intense periods, mm-hmm. and you really can't plan for them. So you're, kind, you're on call. We're on call. So I'm just, I, I'm in awe of the service that you provide. And, and what keeps you, I will start with you, Linda, what keeps you coming back? It's the, it's, it sounds silly, but the joy that I get from it, it's, it's incomprehensible. And we also have a team that we meet once a month, whether we have a vigil or not, and we stay connected with one another. And, um, <laughs> until you've done it and mm-hmm. and felt it, it's it's just it's important. And what about you, Judy? I was going to say I think one of the distinctions here that I think is important to make because your your question obviously comes from yourself or other people talking to you about their fear of dying. We these are not people who we are emotionally attached to. So we come there with a kind of learning, openness, and a, and a receptivity to the process. We're not grieving this person's death. And that's very different from a, a friend or a, or a family member. They, not only are they watching their loved one die physically and what all that entails for that, that particular death, whether it's a disease or you know painful or not, um, we're they're there and they're actively they're grieving they're they're losing someone they love deeply. We're there completely in service, and it's a different. It, there's a there's an emotional distance because of that, but at the same time we're very emotionally open to the process. Well, and that does really help me um, in my mind cement the value of of having even if you've got family members there of having somebody from the outside who can bring that neutral mm-hmm. um respect and um honoring feeling in the midst of mm-hmm. a, a lot of other emotions mm-hmm. i'd like to say that while we're there and the family is there with us we can model to them what it is to give the comfort, to swab their mouth, to to do what we do, and to know to know what to do because a lot of people, I imagine, feel helpless. Right, right. Yeah. Well, we have just a couple minutes, and I want to make sure I get last thoughts from from each of you. What do you want people to take away from this program tonight, and um, who wants to start with that? I don't know. Hmm. That's a good question. Well. I think if there's any little voice inside you that is saying, wow, I don't think I could ever do that, or wow, I would love to do that, anywhere on, in, on that spectrum, 
<laughs> come come to Hospice of the Foothills and and uh, take the general volunteer training and then talk to some of us in the Dying Vigil team about it. I would encourage people too. It's a really beautiful way to learn about death. Great. And Linda, the last mm -hmm. few seconds. I'm speechless. <laughs> <laughs> You know, one thing that we have, he said, you're on call. We have, like the the fire go bag, we have our own go bag. Oh. So it's filled with, I brought mine, I brought mine. It's filled with all kinds of goodies that we can use, a Bible or a rosary or, or a candle or all kinds of things in there that we take with us. Well, very, very interesting, and I thank you both for being here. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank, and I've been talking to Linda High and Judy Lay, Dying Vigil Volunteers. You can tune in and listen to Embracing the Journey the fourth Tuesday of each month at 6.30. Thanks for tuning in tonight. <laughs>